our scripture passage today. Uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34. Starting in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good behavior. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. You, uh, you know each and every person here. You know their hearts. You know the baggage they come with. You know the struggles they've had this past week and past months. And we pray that you, Lord, would speak your words of life into everybody here. We pray that your word would penetrate even the hardest of hearts and make us alive again. Give us a sense of your goodness. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Father, lift us up to see the beauty of the risen Christ. Our hearts are dead without you. We're naturally far from you. We need you to breathe your life into us, and we pray that you would today, even in these next few minutes, God. Transform us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Anybody here like taking road trips? Anyone road trip person? All right, yeah, some of us, good. I love road trips, and back in 2001, I took my first solo road trip. I was 
so excited for it. And I was driving from my parents' home in Colorado to Georgia to begin my sophomore year in college. And it was some 1,273 miles, which is actually something I didn't know back then <laughs> because Google Maps in 2001 didn't exist. Instead, I pulled out these two things that you'd be lucky to find today. One was a Rand McNally Atlas, and the other was a Motel 6 directory. And what you did is you opened the atlas, and each state took up you know, a full sheet, and you would trace on the interstate, and there'd be these little arrows between points that would tell you the mileage, how far something was from another. And you kind of add up the mileage, and then when I got to a point where I thought I would want to spend the night, I then... Uh, pulled out my Motel 6 directory, looked up that city, and it showed all the hotels in the area, and I would call the front desk. I was excited because I'd recently got a cell phone, which meant no long distance fees, and I could call them and see if they had availability and double check the price if it was the same in this paper directory. Anybody remember those days when you had to take those trips? Yeah, exactly. Uh, these days, Technology does all of that for you, right? As long as you have your phone, you're set. Uh, these days, technology has even replaced parents. Like when our kids ask us something that we don't know about, they soon get impatient and just run over to the counter and say, hey, Alexa, and get the real answer, right? And if they, they actually trust Alexa more than they trust us sometimes. Technology has revolutionized everything about our life, and in particular, it's revolutionized how we travel. No more Rand McNally road atlases. No more hotel directories that you would have to get updated every year. And these days, if someone tries to give you directions, uh, you actually get annoyed at them, right? You're like, just stop telling me how to get there and just give me the address so I can plug it in my phone. Technology has changed everything about travel. I wonder if the resurrection has changed as much about your life as technology has. Yeah, I mean, if we're honest, technology, say Google, for instance, impacts your life every single day, right? Every day you're using its services. Does the resurrection impact you every day? And yet, if you think about it, what is going to matter in 100 years? And it's not just that, though, that the resurrection is going to matter much more in 100 years, but the resurrection should actually have a bigger impact on your life today in the day-to-day -day stress and chaos of life, the resurrection changes everything. So has it? And that's the question I want every one of you to wrestle with in this next few moments. Has the resurrection revolutionized your life? And here's three ways that it should. First, it frees you from your sin. Second, it gives you hope for the future. And then third, it allows you to embrace suffering. So let's look at each one of those. At first, it frees you from your sin. Our passage is at the end of this ancient letter to a church in Corinth, Greece. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And, and Corinth has sometimes been compared to like the New York City of its day. It was this hub of intellectual and cultural ideas. And, and one of the popular cultural ideas back then in Corinth was that our bodies are kind of these inconveniences that one day we'll be rid of. And frankly, the older I get, I turn 40 next month, the more appealing that idea is to just be able to get rid of these aging bodies and, and float around and not have to deal with the hassle of life. But that idea 
was working its way into the church as well, so that the church had kind of started to breathe that air, the cultural and intellectual air of Corinth. And so they agreed that, yes, Jesus died and had been raised from the dead. Yes, Jesus was going to come back and, and take us home. But they didn't believe that Jesus was going to resurrect their bodies. And so Paul is making this argument. Take verse 13. If there's not a coming resurrection, that has big implications. Guess what? That means there wasn't a resurrection for Christ. And why does the resurrection matter? Why should you believe in a resurrection? Well, verse 17 tells us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. I once uh, saw this quote that I, I couldn't find uh, when I started looking for it again, but it was something in the effect there was a prominent psychiatrist a number of years back who had spent his whole life studying various mental diseases and, and working in the psych ward. And, and he made this comment after many years of study that he believed probably half of his patients could have been freely discharged if they just believed they were forgiven. Now, maybe you've never been a patient in a mental hospital. Maybe you have. But every single one of us struggles to believe we're actually forgiven. And it's no wonder that it's such a struggle because Paul says, the only way to know that you're forgiven, that you can be free, is if Christ was actually raised. Has the resurrection freed you from your past, from your baggage, from your sin? Or, like so many people, are you trying to find all these other ways to gain freedom from your sin, from your past? What are those other ways? Well, maybe you're eating or drinking the pain away. Maybe you're trying to be really good to balance out that scale for all the bad things you did in the past. Are you living every day in a mental courtroom where every day you hear you're making this case for, no, I actually am a good person. I'm not so screwed up. I'm worth something. I, I matter. And yet, have you ever wondered why so many of us, probably every single one of you, struggles with that? Why do we live in this mental courtroom? And maybe it's because deep down we know there actually is a case against us. We aren't as good as we look. There's a darkness in every single one of our hearts. There's a brokenness that we try so hard to hide from others and even ourselves. And so every day we wake up and the trial is continuing. We go back to the courtroom in our mind and try to prove not just to others, but even to ourselves, I'm not guilty but do you want to live the rest of your life on trial? Do you want to always be worrying about what the verdict is going to be in the end? Or do you want to be free? And the resurrection offers freedom. How? Well, it goes back to Paul's argument where he says there's this inseparable link between Christ's resurrection and yours. He's saying you can't have Christ's resurrection without yours. You can't have your resurrection without Christ. They are linked. And what that means is the resurrection was not kind of this one-off event that we celebrate once a year, but it was actually the first fruits of a coming harvest. Paul uses that language in verse 22. He says, Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. We're in springtime right now. How do you react when you see the first, say, tulip leaves or daffodil leaves poking above the winter ground? 
you get excited, right? There's joy. The, they, the plant survived the winter. And that first tulip brings the promise that more are coming. And Paul says Christ's resurrection was the first bloom of an eternal spring. And it means that your resurrection is sure to follow. Christ's resurrection started this chain reaction that leads right to the Christian's resurrection. It's like that movie scene. I think it's been in a number of cartoons and other places where you know, the, the good guys have been trapped by the bad guys and they're tied to this long, heavy chain. And maybe they're on a boat, right? And the, the bad guy kicks one end of this heavy chain overboard and it starts sinking to the bottom of the ocean and, and coil after coil drop into the ocean and they brace themselves because they know it's just a matter of time before we get drugged down with it. Christ's resurrection was this chain that got pulled up to heaven and right now it is uncoiling and you're tied to the end of it and your life will follow Christ's. For Paul to be a Christian fundamentally meant that you are united to Christ. A.T. talked about this in the sermon last week that to be a Christian means your life is linked to Jesus's. That, that you are connected to the divine that Jesus' actions become your actions. So that means, in one sense, Jesus' death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. To put it very practically, this means that 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was walking on this dirt, and he lived a perfect life in every single way, he was actually living the life you never could, and he was living it for you. It was like he, test day came, and you knew you were going to fail, and he comes in and takes the test for you. It's like he gives you his straight A report card and tears up your failing report card, or he takes it home to his parents. See, when Christ died, he died with you, if you are his, in his arms. So that in one sense, you have already faced the judgment for your sins some 2,000 years ago. The case against you was closed on Calvary. And your judgment day is long past, and now you are living in total freedom. Christ has done it all. As Fleming Rutledge powerfully puts it, she writes, He is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh, and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required a human sacrifice. He has become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He himself was turned over and forsaken. And when Christ was raised on that first Easter Sunday, you were raised to new life because Christ held you in his resurrection. So do you see why Paul says in these first few verses of our passage, if you don't think you'll be raised, it means that Christ was not been raised. Because these two things are inseparably linked. What happened to Jesus has happened to you. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest proof that you will be resurrected. It's just on a time delay. The fuse is still running. And how do you become united to Christ? 
Well, it is through faith in him. It's through looking to Jesus and saying, I want to be done with living my life on trial. And I'm going to finally be honest. And I know I'm guilty. I know I've screwed up. And I know I can't fix myself. I'm sick and tired of always trying to prove my worth. I know I'm a sinner. And my only hope is in Jesus. In Jesus, when you come to that moment, it is the most honest moment of your entire life where you finally say, I can't do it. I'm way worse than I want anyone else to know. And I need a savior. And what Jesus does is he takes your verdict. He lets the gavel of justice fall on his life. And what that does is that actually allows you to be completely honest about your own sin, right? If you are in the end trying to fix yourself, you can never be honest with yourself because it'll be too overwhelming to acknowledge the depths of what needs to get fixed in your heart. But when the one who is infinite opens his arms and says, come to me, I can take it. It allows you to open even the darkest parts of your heart to his wonderful light and to be changed. And so when you have that simple childlike faith, to be a Christian is on one hand to surrender and to stop trying so hard and say, I need Jesus. He then unites his infinite life to yours. He seals you in his life so that, as Petrus van Maastricht puts it, Christ lives in us and takes possession of all our faculties in such a way, in all things and at all times and everywhere, Christ's humility, obedience, holiness, and righteousness flourish and shine forth in that Christ's life in all these ways is made manifest in us. Being a Christian isn't trying your best to live a good life. It's about recognizing that you need Jesus and then in his grace he comes and makes his life manifest through yours so that you shine forth with the beauty of God. Has the resurrection revolutionized your life? Has it freed you from your past, your sin, and your baggage? And if it hasn't, you need to turn your eyes to Jesus and be united to him to stop trying and say, he is what I need. The verdict is in. Jesus was made guilty on the cross so you could go free. And then this takes us to our next point. The resurrection gives us hope for the future. In verse 20, Paul shifts the argument and says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then he goes on to explain the implications of that. And I want to focus on verses 24 to 26, where he writes, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. History is the story of one revolution after another political revolution, technological re revolution, and every revolution happens because something is not right in the world and someone else is saying, this is how we're gonna fix it. And even the best of revolutions always come with a dark underbelly, a dark side. I remember reading uh, back in 2010, this article in Wired Magazine where it, it talked about Facebook, which hadn't been around that long at that point, was helping to fuel the Arab Spring. Uh, maybe you remember that, where it started in Tunisia and spread its way to Egypt and then around the Middle East, where many young people and others were gathering in protest against these corrupt and oppressive governments. And 
tools like Facebook were allowing them to communicate and coordinate so that they could come together. And, and it actually led to the, the topple of many dictators and these corrupt governments. And, and the article made this, uh, painted this great picture where it looked like Facebook and Twitter and these other new companies would play in making the world a more peaceful place. And yet, how much has changed in 10 years? That seems like a totally different world from where we're living in now, because these last few years, we've had a front row seat to how all of those you know, technological wonders that we're going to make or save us may actually be destroying us. It's making lives worse for so many people, young people, and probably many others who are bombarded, actually every one of us, you're bombarded every day with hundreds of digitally altered images that create these unrealistic and unhealthy standards for how you should look. And you feel judged by every one of them. It's making life worse for Americans, where we don't no longer have one country where we have an established set of facts that we can debate about, but we have two Americas with two different sets of facts and no one can agree. We can just hate each other. Like, what if all the things in this revolution that we thought were going to save us are actually hurting us? You know, it was great. When I was writing the sermon, Google could tell me within, you know, a few milliseconds that it was a 1,273-mile drive from where I grew up in Colorado to where I went to college in Georgia. But is that worth the stress of saying, also, or that expectation of also, being needing to respond to your work email at every hour of the day because technology is ubiquitous. So, or Apple has made it so you never have to worry about forgetting your plane ticket when you leave the house, right? Remember having to do that and you had your paper ticket and you better have it if you want to get on that plane. But does that balance out, say, the increase of suicides that body shaming and online bullying and other things have brought through us all being connected? What hope do you have for the future? And I don't know about you, but I'm not all that optimistic for our country or for our world. There's no end in sight to violence, war, hate, diseases. But you see, the resurrection gives you a different and deeper hope. One that gets to the root of the problems and ends the deepest of our pain. Every revolution that we bring on has a dark underbelly. It cannot get to the root of the issue. It only trades one set of issues for another. But the resurrection changes everything. Christianity takes the evil that we see in our world ever so seriously. It says that evil is such a real thing that God had to die to end its power. Evil isn't just a psychological condition. It's not just a result of a bad childhood. It's not just an addiction to bad things. No, evil is real, and it took the life of the Son of God, and Jesus has felt the weight of injustice and pain in his bones, and he still wears the scars to show it. But the resurrection, then, is his proof that he and no one else, no other power, no other government, no other you know, startup can conquer the deepest problems that our world faces, that he can actually destroy the last enemy. And he is ushering us into a world where the end of verse 28 tells us 
God will be all in all. And, and what does that world look like? Well, what is God? The Westminster Confession of Faith describes God this way. He is infinite in being and perfection. He is a most pure spirit. He is unchangeable, boundless, eternal. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Imagine a society that is that. And that is what God is, and Christ's resurrection was the cornerstone of a new world where everything reflects that perfect harmony and beauty of that boundless God. And that's our hope for the future. It's a world where, as Revelation 21.4 tells us, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or crying or sorrow or pain. All these things are gone forever. Do you want that world? And because Christ was raised... It started a chain reaction that makes that future more certain than even the chair and the ground you're seated on. And that means as Christians, when our life has been revolutionized by the resurrection, no matter how dark it gets, hope breaks in. That the one who has conquered the last enemy is now cleaning up everything else. And we know what the future holds. So are you living with the confidence that one day every tear will be wiped away from your eyes forever? And that takes us to the third point. The resurrection allows you to embrace suffering. This is the third part of Paul's argument, verses 29 to 34. What does it mean to live like the resurrection has revolutionized everything? And his answer is surprising. It's not oh, just be happy all the time or, you know, do whatever. His answer is, you're not afraid to embrace suffering right now because you have a hope for the future. Now, before he gets there, we have this verse 29 where Paul makes this reference to baptism for the dead. And just to comment on it very briefly, this is the only place in the Bible where this is mentioned. We have no records of it in the early church or in the surrounding Greek and Roman culture. It, it seems to be in no one knows exactly, this is a, a grand mystery, but no one knows exactly what was going on here, but it seems to be kind of this idiosyncratic practice of this one church in Corinth, and it was never passed on. The pastor, Dick Lucas, has kind of the best explanation of, that I've heard of, of what the Corinthian church was probably doing, but again, it's a mystery. And he said, you know, think about it like a soldier who is awarded for, posthumously for actions that he did in war but he's no longer alive to receive the medal. And so what does the president do if it's a, it's a medal of high honor? Well, he doesn't just put a stamp on a package and ship it to the next of kin. No, he invites the family to the White House. And maybe the man's wife is still alive. And so in there, in that ceremony, he takes that medal and he pins it on his wife's chest, not because she earned it, but as a way of giving it to that man to honor him. And she's doing it, you know, he is, his spirit is living through her in a sense to represent the actions of him. And it would be very easy to think of back in that day with high mortality rates where you would have people who have professed faith, but for a number of reasons, died before they got baptized. And because the church was so new and they wanted to proclaim this Christianity, this, this 
this religion that was overtaking the Roman world, they would have a family member be baptized in their place to symbolize the faith that that person had. didn't replace their faith. It, it was a symbol of that faith that they had. And Paul's point is, if you're doing that, you're living like you want a resurrection, but you say you don't believe it. And every one of us, we live like we want there to be a resurrection, even if you're an atheist. And then he gives another example of how the resurrection revolutionizes everything. Verse 31, I face death every day. Now, most of us are doing the opposite of that, right? You're doing everything to live longer, to be healthy, to have an easy life, to get more of this or that. What you are living for will dictate the decisions that you make in life right now. What your vision of the future is influences what you're willing to give up right now what you're sacrificing for, what you'll even die for. And so if you took a survey of your life, what would someone say you're actually living for? What are you sacrificing today in order to gain tomorrow? Is it money, ability to retire early, maybe to get this really good job, maybe a place to live or a home to have, good grades or accolades? What will the thing that you're sacrificing your health or your marriage, your family life for, be worth in, say, 200 years? And recognize that 200 years is just a minor blip in all of history. Whatever it is that you're striving for today will become dust and ashes in 2,000 years. And likely no one will remember it and no one will even care about it. And some of us Realize that. Like, what is worth sacrificing so much of my life for for something that's just going to turn to dust in the end? And so the other approach that so many people take is, well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. Verse 32. If the resurrection is not true, and it looks kind of like life is then meaningless, the best life philosophy is have fun today. Do what thrills you. Do what feels good. Do what numbs the pain because you might not have tomorrow, so at least have fun today. But what's the problem with that approach to life? Well, for a lot of us, there's going to be a lot of tomorrows before we die. None of us know how many, but probably not all of us will die tomorrow. And more often than not, the eating and drinking and being married today leads you to waking up the next morning with a hangover. And this is the human dilemma. Do you live your life on a roller coaster from one high to one hangover and do it over and over and over again? Or do you strive for things that in the end you realize are just going to turn to dust and ashes in a few centuries? What's the point of life? And the resurrection, though, fundamentally frees you from that rat race of saying, well, my life is horrible, so I'm just going to have fun today. It frees you from the rat race of saying, I need more, because then once I get that thing, then I'll be happy. It alters the equation of what a good life looks like. It it frees you from so much of the, the marketing of our society of more, 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 and it says, the best is yet to come in Jesus. And, And Paul, in other writings, he says, guess what, guys? Our world, it is like our world is in labor pains right now of the new reality that God is ushering into an existence. And can we have that perspective, right? That if we are in labor pains of the new life, why should we be surprised by suffering? 
Because when you're in the birth canal, it probably hurts. <laughs> but that is not your home, but it is ushering you into where your real home is, with God. Paul so powerfully describes what resurrection life looks like in his next letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 6, verse 9. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give our spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. That is the opposite of all the wisdom in our world right now, right? It is the opposite of how so many of us are trying to live. Let that last sentence sink in. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. The world is lying to us day after day, and we buy into those lies. You need more stuff, own everything, flee suffering, treat yourself. It's okay to have fun, this won't matter, don't worry about tomorrow. But the resurrection flips the equation on our entire life so that we can honestly say we have nothing and yet we have everything. I mean, in the end, who really cares what you have if you're in the birth canal? That's not where you're going to live your life. There's this story that's been passed down through the centuries about John Chrysostom, who was this fourth century pastor and influential church leader. And the story is probably an adaptation of a bunch of different things that he wrote. It didn't happen quite like this, but it, I think it powerfully shows that perspective of a resurrection life. And so he was getting in trouble with the Roman government, and the Roman empress, Eudoxia, she called him before her and threatened to banish him from the land if he insisted on maintaining his independence as a preacher right? and continuing to preach what he thought God wanted him to preach, what God's word said, instead of being influenced by the government. And so there he is standing before the empress and she's threatening him and he responds, but you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. Well, the empress says, well, but then I'll kill you. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ and God. Well, then I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasures are in heaven and my heart is already there. Well, then I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, Chrysostom replied. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you can never separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. That is a life that has been revolutionized by the resurrection. Has your life been revolutionized by the resurrection? Or by the way that you live, what you're sacrificing so much for right now, what you're longing for, what you're all worked up about, give the impression that Jesus could just as well still be in the grave because it's not making any difference. Has your life been revolutionized by the resurrection? I want my life to be. I know it's far from it. I want my life to be more revolutionized, more impacted by the resurrection than Google that I use every day. But it's so hard to get there, isn't it? And that's the journey we're on. That's why we all need each other. That's why we need to gather together. We need to worship. We need to pray for each other. That's the journey I invite every one of you to join us on, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to live transformed lives. 
Father, it's sad because it seems like it is so easy for everything else to control our life. Whether it's our phone, technology, being late to something, canceled plans. Lord, it is so easy for those things to ruin our day. And yet it seems so hard for us to let the resurrection lift us up and steady us and revolutionize our life. Maybe even in that difficulty, it shows the deep truth that that is what we need most. And we cannot do it. And we ask that you would, Father. I pray for everybody here, Lord. Whether they've known you their entire life or whether they're just beginning to learn who you are, that you would speak your words of life into our hearts, that you would nourish our souls with your living water to show us how good you are. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.